0: Rise and shine, Mr. Freeman.
1: Be careful of what you do.
2: Big Brother is watching you.
0: You say that you got me all in the mobile. I
1: always feel like somebody's watching Rather
0: than offer you the illusion of free choice, I will take the liberty of choosing for you.
2: Hello, everyone. This is the Hurricane Labs crew and a special VIP guest speaker recording here at the 2015 Converge Conference in Detroit, Michigan. We're going to go ahead and call this podcast today, Don't Bother Trusting, Verify Everything. So let's go around and say hi, tell us what you do and some cool fact about how weird you are that no one's going to remember. So I guess I'm going to go ahead and get started. I'm Kelsey Clark. I'm Hurricane Labs digital marketing specialist. So basically I function as a part of the Hurricane Labs knowledge extension out there into the wide, wild web and i really enjoy promoting the education and knowledge sharing across the infosec community so something weird about me that who knows if anyone will remember i love the band mushroom head and no one believes that because i'm blonde i'm a girl and apparently i don't look like mushroom head would be in my musical interests. so sorry taylor swift <laughs> yeah So, our guest speaker. Oh, I am the
1: guest speaker. Yes, Yes.
2: you are. (laughs) So, my
1: name is Wolfgang Gorlick. I am one of the organizers here at Converge Detroit, and I am also a cybersecurity strategist for CBI. Something weird about me. I am incredibly boring. I don't have anything weird. I'm sorry. <laughs> it will come out later, I promise.
2: Boring with your twenty thousand Twitter followers. I don't think so. I am so.
1: incredible. And see, <laughs> welcome again to the Hurricane Labs podcast.
0: This is gonna be fun. <laughs> so speaking of boring, I guess I'm up next. Uh I'm uh, Tom Kupchak. I'm one of the senior security engineers and the team lead of our operations team uh, at Hurricane. One of my roles is to keep the wheels running and the firewalls turning, I guess, for many of our managed customers. Weird thing about me, I'm, uh... Since Kelsey started with the music theme, I guess I'll continue with that. I'm a musician, a pianist, uh, and an organist. do a lot of improv, where we just kind of make up music on the spot. So I have two CDs that are out that, uh, Collectively, about four people have probably downloaded it. That's what I do in my free time, I guess.
1: That's fantastic. I like the whole rotating of firewalls. You know, so many people forget that and they leave them in the one spot. Yeah, you got to the fail other. over your clusters. You've got to fail them. You got to rotate them around the room. You got to get some sunlight on them. I like that. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very you vortex. have to maximize the chi flow, of course. Yeah, chi yeah, across okay. your firewalls. I Maintaining mean,
3: functionality with uh, firewalls is of the utmost importance. I mean, companies all too often I
1: see
0: that you don't have that, and just those firewalls. They get grouchy, yeah, and then they just start dropping And then, the then they get stale, you bite it, and you're like,
1: ugh, this firewall cleared as we rotate it.
3: So next up is, uh, my name is Nick Jacob. I'm the new guy for now at Hurricane. I was hired as a QA for the Sim and Sock operations. So that basically means I make sure that nobody else is screwed up with rules or anything and make sure that they're all firing as need be. He makes sure stuff works after we rotate the firewall. Exactly. <laughs> I've got to make sure that they can rotate.
1: I think I that's sort of like Laverne and Shirley like assembly line with you guys. to go back and forth real quick
3: Yeah, going the, on through my mind. The big thing is, is pretty much up. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what I do, ever.
1: And Nick's worked with me for the past, and I will attest that that is pretty much...
3: <laughs> Par for the course. I've managed to continue a long, illustrious career of making things up. You'll fit Uh-oh. in well. <laughs> <laughs> so something interesting about me... Uh, I'm on an eternal quest to make the next story about myself seem more impressive than the last and see just how many people I can get to believe that story. So far pretty well since like I said my entire career has been built off that. (laughs) And last
4: I'm Calvin Hedler. I'm an intern at Hurricane Labs. I'm on the Pentest team, the newest member of the Pentest team. So I like to break things. I make sure that security is doing what it should be or when it's not I report that and hopefully our customers fix it sometimes they do sometimes they don't but it's our job to let them know where the issues are so that they can hopefully fix things or make sure they know what to look for. And something odd about me, as Nick would say, I strap lethal, sharp objects to my feet and go very fast in an ice rink on a regular basis.
3: And somehow has not managed to injure himself or those around him. I'm still afraid, like, if I go with you once, I'm just going to end up, that's going to be the end of my story. <laughs> what did he do? Did he fight a bear? Was he out, like, climbing a mountain? No, he while skating. and no. cut his head off. <laughs> The Iceman cometh. Exactly, like it. It would be so such an unimpressive end to.
1: He did what? Have you He's met Kelvin?
0: I'm upset. I, I exactly. <laughs> Most of know. us just do that in a car, you know, so <laughs> you, you don't have the protected metal around. No, you it's, it's a little bit. Night. It's a little
4: bit different going into a wall headfirst at 25 miles an hour when you don't have a car to protect you.
0: Mm.
4: Oh. Do you speak experience? <sighs> yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was a little sore for a couple of days
2: afterwards. It's not bad, all things considered. <laughs> that sounds like a fairy tale. I think your story's going to be really great, Nick. See? begins. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we're having a great time here at Converge. Um, this morning we had Raphael Mudge as our keynote speaker. He was talking about Red Team and pen testing stuff, so that was awesome. And so far today, topics have ranged from homebrew censorship detection by analysis of BGP data, interesting, to the discussion of the four pillars that guide wishful project thoughts into a reality, which we just, well, Tom and I were just at. And then our own Tom Kopchak also spoke about DNS this morning, and DNS is really a critical service for the operation of the internet as we know it. And Tom, would you like to give a brief snippet of something that listeners should have taken away from this particular presentation?
0: Basically, the idea of how DNS operates. Um, one of the challenges I run into with uh, talking about DNS is it's one of those things that everyone thinks they know. And everyone's like, oh, DNS, that's easy. I type in Google and it works and you never have to think about it again. Uh, but then when we actually get down to it like, hey, how can you tell me how DNS works? And I get a uh, blank stare. And it's one of the things that I've ran into trouble with. That talk, I guess, is people think that hey, it's not anything we need to know. But all too often, it's one of those ones that when you're finished, everyone's like, oh, that's really interesting. And I learn stuff. So people learn stuff. I feel like I'm at least trying. So
1: I get really excited about covert channels. I like the you know the, the evasion, the hiding information. I have ran Sims and socks for a long time, so I like to defeat those. So one of the things I liked about your talk was you delved into that, right? Here's how DNS covert channels work. You mentioned a couple of tools that you're using to test it out, and there seemed to be some good discussion in the back about that as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The uh, talking about DNS tunneling mm-hmm. was one of those. Uh, it's, it's something I like to throw out there, and depending on the audience, some people are just like, okay, Tom, shut up. Let's go home. Uh, some audiences really take that and go with it, and the nice thing about this audience is they really seem to catch on to that and had some good discussion on it.
1: I agree. What was the tool you mentioned you guys were using? Uh,
0: well, the tool that uh, I've kind of used for the testing on DNS tunneling is called iodine. Iodine, right. Um, and then just trying to throw that against traditional you know, and IPS systems and different sorts of log correlation tools to see what happens. I've done some research on that. I need to do some more to, given some of the changes that have happened since I've done mm-hmm. research
1: on it. But it's definitely one of those
0: things that I think is a, a problem we're still trying to solve.
1: I agree. And I also heard some commentary. You mentioned Raphael Mudge's opening talk, and he talks about using Dina's beaconing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really cool feature that I've used in uh, Cobalt Strike, the beaconing
4: feature. It's kind of a covert channel, like Wolf was talking about earlier. It's asynchronous communication, which means that you can drop a payload on a box, and you get snippets of information from this box but it doesn't always have to be running you don't have to have the pipe open so to speak you don't have to have a solid connection because it'll just call back home when it when it wants to and it's really cool technology for someone like me who's a red team guy who likes to come up with interesting ways to strike at targets um there's lots of cool things you can do with the dns
3: beaconing uh that he has built into cobalt strike
2: Let's see. And then, Nick, you have your presentation coming up later today.
3: Right. uh, Mine's far less impressive than both of these people. See? Now I'm failing. I'm losing
2: Darn it. But
1: do you have a pirate flag of yours?
3: I still have time before it's presented. I can (laughs) can fix this. I've got a couple (laughs) hours left to find a good picture. Exactly. (laughs) So mine's on uh, sim optimization. A lot of the problems that I've seen in the consultant space is we've been called in, regardless of the organization that I've been at, to fix a lot of the problems a client environment has had when they've deployed the SIM, whether they've tuned the rules incorrectly, whether they've been logging incorrectly, whether they haven't been using it to uh, maximize their network, their uh, security posture. So basically, it's highlighting a lot of uh, best practices that I've that I've seen that I've used in the uh, in the client space to uh, maximize just how much their SIM could be utilized, both for defense and, as I said, network optimization.
2: So everyone, hopefully, who's here will go to that. By the time you'll hear this, it'll be over, but that's okay.
1: Well, that can brings I... up a good point. So all the talks are being recorded. Okay, so perfect. So perhaps in the show notes, you can yeah, even link all to them. all the mm-hmm,
2: talks. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so you'll have access yeah. to all yeah. of the <laughs> wonderful...
1: I still got time to go look professional. So. Wow. <laughs> Not to pressure anyone in this room who hasn't spoken yet, but all talks will be recorded. For quality assurance purposes, of course. Yes. yes. Really to the
2: wild.
0: Humiliation, blackmail, yeah. all those... Yeah, see... You get me.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and then, Calvin, yours is coming up on Saturday.
4: Yeah, it's my first ever conference talk. Um,
2: so Ooh, excited yay!
4: Excited <laughs> and nervous. I hope I don't screw it up, but it, it should be fun. I'm talking about an introduction to moving beyond being a script kitty. Um, I use the example of Metasploit as a common security tool that a lot of professionals consider the domain of script kitties, but it's got its valid uses, but... Uh, When you want to move past that, when you want to build your skill set further, you need to look at writing your own tools when that's a good idea, when that's not a good idea. And I will be using the example of a buffer overflow exploit on kind of how building your own tool can help you understand the underlying technologies that we use on a daily basis, how it can help understand that by writing your own stuff, even if you don't necessarily use your own tools.
1: And that's that's a great example, right? So we're all climbing this mountain in our careers. We're all trying to get to the top. There's always a few people ahead of us. There's always several people behind us. So one of the things that I found exciting about your talk, Calvin, is there is this contingent, maybe about 20% of the audience are students, right? And that's all they've seen is been exactly. They hear about the hacks, and they're like, okay, I don't know, but what, what's the next step? How do I get beyond? How do I go forward? So I, I'm pretty excited to see what you're, you have to show, and I think a lot of people are going to benefit from that. Oh, well, I'm hoping I don't disappoint. Well, it is recorded. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And the formal titles uh, for Calvin's presentation is uh, Moving Past Metasploit, Writing Your First Exploit, and Nick's is the path well-traveled, common mistakes encountered with SIM. So anyway, now we're going to dive into some of the hot topics that have been ignited recently in the InfoSec world. Apparently to some, it's not a sexy issue, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Um, The situation with law versus the tech community when it comes to encryption. So there are two very different sides here. Law officials are focused on listening to the public and providing public safety, so they don't like being in the dark. Whereas the other side, there's the tech people, tech community. They're saying that if the law can take advantage of the vulnerabilities, then the bad guys can take advantage of them too.
3: So right off the bat, one of the things that I was loving was uh, a lot of these researchers were pointing out the big thing the FBI and law enforcement's arguing for is, well, what if there's a bomb? What if there's a kidnapping? We need to be able to get this data to, to find these things. And the technologists are pointing out, but you still can't do it fast. Like, even if you have this weakness... Even if you have this backdoor, even if you have this key to unlock all the cryptography, you still have to take the time to go through the proper channels. And it would still take you a long time to get this information, process it, figure out what's going on and figure out where you need to be to disarm the bomb, to to save the missing child or do any of these things. And you're, you're not actually, it, it's not as simple as we have the data now we know everything and we can always know where the threat yeah. is coming from. Because there's way too much data to do that all at once, at least with our current, within current realms of technology. So that was one of the things that I was like, I was, I was kind of surprised that they're making this argument. And even beyond the fact that it's a vulnerability, it's a blatant vulnerability in encryption to demand that we always have a backdoor available for them is that it wouldn't be effective even if there was.
4: And this is something that's been going on since the 90s with the Clipper chip and the NSA trying to Mandate that everybody use, uh, skipjack, I think the algorithm was. Yeah, that was proven to me. be incredibly flawed. Uh, that was before, before I was interested in computers, uh, by quite a few years, but uh, it's still something that's been going on for many years.
3: And it's something like even, we've even had movies about it. It's like whenever there's a key to get into the place, the key always goes missing or falls into the wrong hands. And then it's always that kind of situation. We make fun of it in our movies and the law and law enforcement is still demanding. We do this. Well,
1: you guys mentioned the nineties. You guys remember when the uh, twin towers were bombed in the nineties? Yeah. Right. So how did that bombing get caught and stopped and everything? Well, it was police work. It was solid police work. They didn't decrypt a communication. They didn't intercept some, you know, secret coded message. It was good police work and good, you know, boots on the ground. How do they break up the mob? Good police work. How do they do any of these things? Good police work. Good police work and listening at the right time and acting will always be decrypting and trying to sort through this massive amount of data that's on the Internet.
0: And realistically, the people who are perpetrating crimes, they're people just like anyone else, and maybe not in the sense of just like everyone else, but they have to communicate. They're, they have their... Their egos. Yeah, it's very rare in a lot of the cases of organized crime or other kinds of plots. Mm-hmm. People are a lot of times going to talk to someone else about
1: it. They're going to brag about it. Absolutely.
0: And that you know, just face-to-face communication protocol is by nature not encrypted. Mm-hmm. And you have that as soon as you know someone has that information. And however, they communicate that, they, there's going to be some kind of chain that
3: police or investigators can put together a lot right of so really like the big point was it, it it seemed to be that the fbi was frustrated that they couldn't get more information rather than they really needed pointing out they've been doing the job for a while before we had computers before encryption was as widespread as it was and they've been doing it pretty effectively this is just them wanting more and being frustrated that a lot of companies are rising up to say no
4: And I would think that when some of the smartest cryptographers, some of the smartest technologists in the world are saying that this is a very bad idea and that this is not something that you should even remotely consider, they would listen. But they have that argument that, but what if something bad happens and we need that data?
3: Exactly. And then there were the the international implications of, well... If the US demands that we have a backdoor to encryption, why would if every other country that has their own their own investigation teams say, well, we need that backdoor as well? Well at that point, why even have encryption? It seems relatively pointless to even bother with that kind of work if everybody's able to un- de-encrypt everything. Unencrypt yeah, unencrypt. At that point, if if everybody can get into it, the encryption becomes pointless in the in, in its entirety. So their answer to the well, what if every other allied country or every other enemy country demands that they have that backdoor as well? Well, we'll figure that out later. No. And it's not
0: like there's enough problems with the encryption even when you're not trying to design in backdoors. Exactly. <laughs> How many algorithms that were designed to be completely secure at all?
1: Well, <laughs> I, I don't go through a pen test report ever without seeing, oh, you've got, you know, old versions of RC4. You've got old versions of SSL. You're a SSL. Well, I'm not going to say the P word because an will freak out. But... You're susceptible to this you know, vulnerability. Let's face it, encryption is always a moving target.
4: And yeah. even if you do mandate that there needs to be a backdoor, that's not going to stop open source projects from using better crypto that's not backdoored. And you're not going to stop malware authors from coming up with new versions of CryptoLocker
1: or so I, things I would, like that. So I would put forth, ideally, they spend the same amount of resources, the government spends the same amount of resources, time and energy, and good old-fashioned police work, as opposed to trying to boil the ocean with the internet state.
0: Yeah, I would I agree with that. I would also argue that there is some data that it does not make any sense to encrypt at all. Things that are considered to be public knowledge. Would it make sense to have everything on Wikipedia encrypted? No. Uh, yeah, Wikipedia is over SSL. So. Well, but the actual content, there, there's no value in having that encrypted at rest, for example, because it at can be accessed from anyone. I look at the same way even like if you had, encryption can fail and it can make data recovery more difficult. Family photos, for example. I don't necessarily see that as being the best thing to encrypt because you want to make sure that you can recover it easily in the case of problems.
1: You clearly haven't seen my family
0: photos. Maybe some of your family photos, <laughs> but like the, the you know the G-rated safe ones, you know that you're okay with getting out there. That that sort of thing. I think that there's the whole usability versus security sort of thing. If there's something you don't want to lose ever,
1: well, so having uh, <clears throat> encryption,
0: not having it encrypted, I think has some value. And I think that goes against the whole, like, you know, tinfoil hat, let's encrypt, encrypt everything. All the things.
1: Yeah. Now, I don't have my tinfoil hat today, so I feel undressed for this uh, conversation. <laughs> However, I would say whenever we get to a point of security versus usability or security versus privacy, that tells me there's a failure in the way to define usability and the failure in the way to define privacy. I agree with you that today the usability sucks around the backup and restoration of encrypted data. But I would argue that's a usability problem. You know what I mean? Why are we not making these products easier to use? Same thing with uh, Moxie Marlinspike had a great blog article on the death of PGP. The point he was making was PGP failed because they did not make it usable. If we get to a security versus usability conversation or security versus privacy conversations between, that's because us, the guys with the boots on the ground, the guys who are doing it, have failed to fix the usability and privacy issues. Yeah, I know a lot of people who use PGP, but I don't know anyone who likes using PGP. I hate it. And, and I, I would encrypt my family photos.
2: So what we're all saying is that uh, we need backdoors and encryption, and we need to give the government the master keys, obviously. Totally. That's completely opposite. <laughs> but besides what Tom was saying, that you know, certain things like the content on Wikipedia or whatever, would you say that encryption is vital to all forms of online activity, or are there some things that can be left unencrypted? I don't know about you, but I come to the
3: perception of if you want to encrypt everything, go for it. If you want to do that, then you can encrypt all your family photos regardless of if they're your kid's first steps or whatever. I, I don't think it matters if you choose to
0: encrypt or not in that case. I think it just, you have to understand the implications either. Okay. Of, of either way. If I'm not encrypting, you know, something like that and it gets up on the internet, you know, that's my fault. It probably wouldn't happen for you. They'd be encrypted files that they'd have to break the encryption of. And then again, if something fails with the encryption, I'm going to be much more likely to forensically recover my stuff as opposed to him. So it's a trade-off.
4: And also one of the issues I see is that a lot of this discussion is happening at a level that's way above the average user. It's more than they wouldn't care about. It's more than they understand because we don't make these issues clearer. And easy to use. Exactly. It doesn't happen at a level that the average person can care about because they don't have the knowledge of why it's a bad idea. They just hear what other people say and whether that's the government saying that encryption is bad um, or it's security people saying that we need encryption. I think that a lot of it is happening at a level that's not understandable to the people who would end up being affected by it
3: mostly. And, and to that point, it actually goes to some another problem that us as the information security community have, which you did a blog post on, where you wouldn't go to a mechanic that was insistent upon terrifying you. Unless Wolf would a blog. Post. Yeah, sorry, sorry, you guys can't see me point. Uh, <laughs> Wolf wrote a blog post about how the idea of us being scary and us kind of getting our jollies off on... Being terrifying to the normal person isn't really how we want our community to be presented and also impacts how we're, how we are accepted as far as what our points are. The government's coming and saying, we could prevent a terrorist bombing if we had a back door. And then we come in and say, yeah, but if they, if they did this, I could make a plane flip over and blow up. And we're like, well, and the average person is saying, we want to stop that. That sounds scary. That's horrible. Why would we listen to this guy? He's, he's awful. Yeah, and, and that and that goes to what you're saying about us not even communicating properly and getting the idea of why this is a it would be a bad idea in the first place.
1: So Kelvin's point is good communication, clearly communicate it, and and explain what's going on, and make it easy, And show people why they should care, yeah, why they so should what, care, tied what to what is part of them. Tom's getting back to. Know when to use it, when not to use it.
0: I think even if you make an encryption product easy to use in that sense, your encryption key is still protected by the passphrase. That gets back to a whole password situation. Well, that's an end-user problem. End <laughs> users just suck at passwords. <laughs> that's so, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the truth. So what does your encryption buy you? It, the only thing it does is it makes it more difficult for, people to dea- for the users to deal with. And yeah, if we fix that problem and make it more transparent, sure, we solve that problem, but we're still... Encryption is just more overhead.
1: Encryption is always more overhead, but we're, we're in a, a day and age where computing is cheap. It's the no, cheapest absolutely. it's ever been. It's only getting cheaper. That's so let, let's use it for encryption. I think, too, a lot of people assume encryption is only for privacy, right? Only for making my files unreadable. The thing we always forget, or not always forget, but often forget, is it's for buying you time. So in that case, if, if someone's guessing that password, uh, perhaps... Someone may be having a SIM that they're monitoring, looking for people who are guessing
3: passwords. Yeah, it's far easier to see somebody hacking away at it than it would be to see somebody just get some information and move it. Legitimate looking in for traffic will just fall to the wayside and nobody
1: will pick pick up on that. And I hear there's a talk at, at Converge about creating a well-matured well, mon- uh, well matured monitoring program that could catch that well-tuned program, right?
3: Exactly. I hear if you listen to this guy, you may learn a thing about how to improve your security <laughs> posture using monitoring.
4: And I, th- I think a, a large part of what we do is mainly helping clients remove the low-hanging fruit. Because for most clients, for most end users as well, it's about removing the easy ways in for somebody like me to get in and steal your data. It's about being better than the company down the street is at that so that you don't get hacked even if they do. It's not about being the best you can possibly be. You just have to be better
1: than most. I couldn't agree more. Every morning I'm like, how can I make my clients better than Calvin? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Every single morning, that's what I wake up thinking. No, but it, it's, you're absolutely right. You walk into most environments, and if they can spend $100 and fix 100 different problems with $1 piece, or spend $100 in a bright, shiny box that's going to maybe fix two problems, what are we telling them to do? Let's clear off the weeds and get the low-hanging stuff taken care of. Exactly. And I think
4: encryption is just one of those things. If you can protect data in transit better so that nobody can read it except its intended recipient, it doesn't it becomes less of an issue as that becomes the accepted standard because people will find ways to make that easier. People will find ways to make that faster. I agree. And I think it doesn't matter if everything's encrypted or if, if some things are not encrypted, as long as the important stuff does become easier to use and the critical applications the critical data is protected in transit.
0: yeah and you look at like web apps for example why have the application try to decide hey i'm going to encrypt the social security number but not birth dates and then you have the person who mixes up their social security number and birth date because you know they're totally the same thing but you could end up with the case where you have that PII data in a field that isn't encrypted just yes. encrypt the whole thing and then right. you guys dump a database it's all encrypted anyway so it makes it a little bit more difficult and you know, to, like you said by the time mm-hmm. to uh, try to decrypt that break the encryption as opposed to just having plain text
1: so yeah I think coming full circle we know we need to encrypt things we need yeah. to prevent people from getting in Everyone and their brother's trying to, to get into our data. We know that all the time. Um, and if we can encrypt the full database or make Kelvin's life hard, we're in a better place. You look at what happened with, with Hacking Team, and I think we're, we're going into the next topic. Go for it, Kelvin. Hacking Team is a company that makes both uh,
4: what are called remote administration tools, also called RATS, which are commonly used by malware as well. And they make intrusion software, which is what people like me do. Um, to break into systems, exploit vulnerabilities. Uh, one of the major findings from the, the data that was dumped from hacking team, there was 400 gigabytes of data that they, that was leaked. And some of it includes some zero days, which are the most dangerous type of vulnerabilities because they're vulnerabilities that were previously unknown and have been uh, exploited in the wild by customers of hacking team to, to track people or perform surveillance operations on targets. And there was two or three vulnerabilities for Flash that were previously undiscovered. I think there was a privilege escalation vulnerability for Windows as well. And these are some very dangerous tools that were released and took vendors by surprise, took security professionals by surprise, and we're just now starting to be able to monitor for those and use those in pen tests or detect and patch them as well.
3: Zero-day protection has always been a bit of a sore subject to me. I've actually dealt with people that would like to tout that ability.
1: No, I've heard tell that you can detect zero days even after a patch has been released.
3: (sighs) Don't even get me started on it. It's an old story, but it was one of my big pet peeves at at a sales presentation. I'm like, no, you can't actually do that. The whole problem with the zero days, it, it, it's not out yet. I, I can't protect against the future. I would love to protect against the future,
1: but. So detecting man, zero days is, is, is not, not a, a possible. You can try to detect what they do after zero days.
3: Yes, and you d- and, which is why rather than protecting against the vulnerability itself, you try to monitor against the malicious activity or prevent anomalous activity before it even gets there. But the fact that they had zero days that are being released, being exploited, and honestly, how fast do clients, do clients, not even just clients, but uh, the average user or the average company, roll out patches when when people like us are crying that the sky is falling once again, and that they need to patch, how I'm, many of them actually do? I'm
4: sure that I will still be able to use these exploits on pen tests for
1: years to come. Probably good seven years. MSO 8.6.7 yeah, oh, is
4: still around, and that's one of the worst vulnerabilities that, that has ever
1: been out there for the most part. Now, Kelvin, as a pen tester, you said earlier that you know, our goal is to, to find the low-hanging fruit and clean off you know, the things that are obvious. How do, how, do you, um, how do you reconcile that, be faster than the bear, be faster than the company next to you? Don't be the sickly gazelle. Don't be the sickling gazelle. Companies and attackers who are using O days and are going directly after certain targets because you can't, right? All the all the hanging fruit, all the all the trash can be clean. All your windows can be nice. All your walls are up, and still you got an O day. And still you're wrong. I think one of the ways to look at
4: that is kind of what Raphael Mudge was talking about with threat emulation, because some of these actors that will penetrate large organizations, important organizations, will use zero days, and they will have ways in that you can't detect, but you can detect their activity on your network. So even if you don't know how someone gets in, if they're using an unknown exploit, you can find out what they're doing after the fact uh, and prevent that. Or you can have rules in place, egress rules or whatever, to prevent data from leaving your network without you knowing about it.
1: That, that actually is, is cool you brought up Raphael Mudge because, and I hate to do this because every time I do, his ego gets a little bit bigger and we're going to be pushed out this <laughs> room. But the, he had a picture of you on the slides. He had a picture of your uh, talk that you did about using threat models Woo! for okay. a significant person. See, I told you I hate to do that. Every time I <laughs> do it, the, the, the room got low, less room for the rest of us. But can you, you talk to that? Because that's a, that's a great point, right? Just the ODA is only the first step and then tack that.
3: Right. So, as I mentioned,
1: Protecting against an
3: O-day itself is pretty much unfeasible, but protecting against the behavior of an attacker that is feasible, that is possible, pretty much. I, and I say this knowing that I'm kind of painting a target on my back. Attackers are pretty much going to do the same thing. Their, their Ladies points... and
1: gentlemen, Nick Jacob, March was prime on Twitter. <laughs> I'll find target his IP. I mean, bind him. Go ahead. Let me interrupt. I, okay.
3: So now that I've been properly threatened, identified, and labeled as viable. Uh, The thing that all attackers are going to do is their job is to get in as quietly as they can or maybe not as quietly as they can, depending on the company they're going for, get the stuff and get out. And if you're watching for that kind of behavior, then you're going to, then you're going to be able to either prevent the attack or at least stem the data loss, stem the damage before it gets too significant. With that, you got to lay out how that attack is going to go. So maybe shell shock in particular, for example, the specifics of that attack are going to be unique to that particular threat model, but the, how that attack is utilized is still just like still the first step in how in the end goal that you know about already. So one of the big practices that both Wolf and I've worked a lot on is creating realistic threat models or promoting the idea of threat modeling with clients and with uh, within environments to realistically estimate what an attack is, where the vulnerable areas are, and where you can lay out your strongest security controls. And that's one of the things that a lot of people don't really understand is how a realistic attack looks and how surprisingly simple it may be at times to lay out what what an attack actually is going through step by step. And how to prevent it or detect it at each step of the uh, interaction. Yeah.
4: And unfortunately, a lot of the time when we're doing pen tests, it's not a realistic threat simulation because that's not what the client asks for. They want a standard black box pen test or they want a standard web application pen test where we're allowed to be noisy. We have, we have these tools that we use to brute force things or automated scanners that show us possible, possible attack vectors. But that's not how real threats work, and that a lot of companies don't understand that when they ask for a pen test.
1: Yeah, at CBI, we divide that up into controls-based pen testing. You know, test against the PCI controls, for example. Vulnerability pen testing, which is what everyone thinks a pen test is. Scan me for bones and see if you can break in with those. And then finally, scenario-based pen testing, right? So as it's an education process for the market. You may think a pen test is only a bone. Uh, But have you thought about these scenarios and would you like us to test those scenarios? And I think that's something that it would be
4: cool to do a lot more of going forward because that's what's going to be more valuable in the future. It's going to be what keeps good pen testers relevant and it's going to be what keeps good assessment organizations relevant is providing that ability because as these threats grow more dangerous, they also grow more targeted. And that's the sort of, exercise that's most valuable to a company that will be targeted.
2: So I kind of want to jump into something that is a little less uh, technical, a little more socially oriented. So Google has a lot going on, right? Um, they have some major societal impacts. They're doing things like free code teaching for children this summer. You know, they're offering free broadband to low-income families, the self-driving cars, etc. The question posed is, is it Google's job to fix society?
3: I'd say society's doing a pretty bad job of fixing itself, so I welcome the technocracy. To to anybody that hasn't yet, doesn't know this, I'm a huge gamer, so if anybody gets that reference, contact me on Twitter, we can talk. And if you don't get that reference, remember, big target on his back. Yeah, you can make fun of me relentlessly. Absolutely. It's okay, my ego can take it.
4: I don't think it's necessarily Google's job to do that. I think it's important that somebody is pushing for these changes for... Using technology in a manner that will help society as a whole. I don't know if Google is going about it entirely the right way because I'm not entirely familiar with what their overall strategy is, but I think that as long as they're working in the public's best interest, uh, whatever else you might think about Google, I think they're doing a lot of things that could benefit us in the future. They've got a lot of a lot of moonshots that are that if they pan out could actually impact us a great deal and a great deal for the better. And I think that's important that somebody's doing it. Yeah, that's a, a lot that's of other companies. A, yeah, doing. that's
3: a very important distinction to make. Is it's somebody needs to be doing it, and it just happens happens to be Google that's getting the most press for it, and they're, they're leading the way in a lot of ways that I think are are in fact a good idea. I Still, don't get why self driving cars. Haven't been already
1: done, but. Well, leading technology areas, those markets always have companies that have extra money. And those companies, historically, as part of brand building and whatnot, have invested that money in the Greater of Society, which has been phenomenal across the board for America and for the United States. And you can go back to the Telegraph, right? The Telegraph companies were doing picnics and organizing things for the local town. Railroads brought us the, the time zones. Uh, look at everything the electrical companies did in the early days. Again and again and again. We see technology companies stepping forward, opening up new markets, and then giving back. I used that metaphor earlier about climbing the mountain. I mean, society is progressing forward, but we've got a lot of people who are still in the valley that we're trying to bring along with
4: us. And you see it, companies like Facebook doing it as well. They are trying to help more people have access to more technology, uh, better technology, and hopefully it's a net positive, although jury's still out on a lot of that.
1: Yeah. Well, no. Hurricane Labs, too, right? You guys are in technology. You guys are out here. You're educating people. I mean, and I'm sure you guys do a lot in the Cleveland area. I'm not entirely familiar to what to do with nonprofits and whatnot.
2: You know, various presentations at meetings. I mean, anything we can really show up to. and
1: Absolutely. It's all about outreach. Right. It's all about- uh, CBI, the company I work for, we run a Detroit-based charity where we help uh, dogs get placed. We help, you know, stand-up buildings clearing out our rubble, everyone gets together and volunteers that way. I mean, lots of companies across the tech space uh, are giving back, and I think that's a great thing. I think Google's one of the biggest, and they're giving back in the biggest way. And it's really very cool because they can both assist with these charitable
4: donations and things like that, and they can also assist by uh, brainstorming more technology that will help people have access to the things they need and
0: help people be safer, hopefully, with Their cars not crashing into each other and things like that. Some of the things that are brought up in this article are a little bit different and I know we're talking about the self-driving cars and all that kind of stuff, but like the pedestrian safety is more like changing Google Maps in order to like reduce the number of left turns, for example, so that there's less left turn accidents. Like that's something actually a council in New York City is asking Google to do. But then some of the other things, like changing algorithms so that um, to reduce the likelihood of youth violence, like apparently rap music, because of the lyrics in there, it's more likely to have gun so
1: there's associated a, with it. there's a book I re- uh, recently read called Nudge. Uh, to take a look, that's pretty interesting. The whole concept of nudge is how can we make small changes in our environment to, to help people you know, stay safe? One of the examples are, and it would not apply to me because I use cruise control, But if you're going around a curve, certain areas will shorten the lines to give the visual illusion of going faster so that people automatically slow down, right? The whole concept of nudge and the concept of algorithms keeping you from turning left and whatnot, or at least recommending you not, I would argue is a good one because we're not telling people what to do. You can still ignore your GPS. I ignore my GPS every single day, and it yells at me constantly. You can still do whatever you want. Well, let's make it, let's give people a little nudge in the right direction to help them out. With the massive amount of data Google has, sounds good to me. And I would say that it's not
4: their responsibility to do that, but they are making a lot of good moves in that area. They are doing a lot of things that will benefit people, not just their organization.
3: To, to, to boot, you have the power, you have the information, you have the ability to influence society in a way that they won't even notice. Nobody's going to notice that eh? You know, I, I don't turn left as much as I used to a year ago. Are you telling me you wouldn't use that power? I, I won't lie. To you. I, that's, that's you are annoying. not
1: getting that power.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that specifically is probably why I'm never going to get a job at Google. they are going to be like, well, we want to hire you, but this mega maniacal podcast you did way <laughs> that way,
2: we think you're going to go insane. Well, speaking of jobs at Google and, you know, having control, um... The part that I'm interested in, you know, sexism has been coming up a lot uh, in regards to Google and just across the tech community. The most recent issue with Google is that they found that Google ads were targeting um, male users for job postings that were high-paying executive jobs more often than women. So just in regards to the sexism, is there any... I'm just curious if there's any commentary on that. You know, whether Google or other companies in the tech community should be working harder on this.
3: To me, that's always struck me as a bit of a societal thing. Uh, to, to quote my nerdiness, uh, Joss Whedon was asked about, why is it you write so many f- strong female characters? Why is that so important to you? And his answer was, because that's a question that you're asking. The fact that that, e- that statistical difference even exists... Mm-hmm. is more a problem with society than just Google. I mean, Google has really taken a lot of great strides to try to
0: improve the potential and the opportunities for women in the computing field. So they've actually been a pioneer in a lot of that space. But I, I do yeah.
4: agree that that's something that a lot of companies need to do a lot more about. And I do think that as a society, we need to do a lot about that. And I guess Google can use their, their great power for for good in order to kind of nudge people along a little bit here and there uh, to try and benefit and prevent
3: discrimination,
4: prevent sexism and racism and issues like that from even
3: being an issue. Dare we drop the Spider-Man line of of great power and great responsibility? I mean, when you have the ability to influence society the way you do, like I said, do you use that power Google's stepping up and saying, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. Okay, let's let's see what we can do and see how we can change it.
1: Well, I think in this case, unfortunately, it sounds like Google is reflecting society and advertising more towards men than nope. women, if I understood you correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, With the ad targeting. And right. I've also it's,
0: seen things on Google, like results, if you put in a grammatically correct Thing the search suggestions are going to be very different than if you put something that's grammatically incorrect, and that's kind of reflecting society as well. the The input that it gets, the algorithms return a certain thing. Right. So, from like from a few, purely computational standpoint, it's not like there are servers in some data center being
3: like, "Oh, did they check we the mailbox? To... <laughs> yeah. Like if they checked off that they are male, we will send them more
1: yeah. professional I'm... ads. It... <laughs> I've got uh, I've got a daughter. This is well known. We've already talked about encrypting family photos. She, I'm under strict NDA to release any of her family details. Uh, but she is, is heavily in the STEM, heavily in the computing. Uh, she's spoken at security conferences from a, from a young girl on. And uh, now she's doing a lot of robotics work. Uh, where I'm going with this is I've got a very vested interest. I want to see it fixed. But saying, hey, we're going to make people make a couple less left turns mm-hmm. is a lot easier than saying we're going to address sexism that's been going on for way too long. Especially when it's
3: an automated function that is basically responding to what exists in society. I mean, I, every, interesting... every
1: nudge in the right direction to fix that, I'm all for. It's just it's going to be a lot harder to fix. And it is
4: kind of an interesting paradigm when algorithms become a reflection of our society just because of the way that they're learning, the have got machine learning that does that. And yeah. It's interesting how it picks up on things like that if it is just automated.
3: And or better, that's, that's why you can't really have a grudge against Google for this because it's a reflection of what it is analyzing and what it's picking up on. They didn't program it to say, well, Kelsey, you're female, so all of our ads are going to offer you less money. They, it, it's a reflection of something that should have been fi- that should be fixed in society.
1: And I think, right. you know, I'm I'm glad it's in the article and I'm glad people are bringing it to Google's attention. I'm sure they're working on the problem. Absolutely. They should. It needs to be fixed.
2: Just to kind of wrap this up a little bit. The last question I have in regards to the sexism issue is with every industry, you know, whatever whatever field everyone's in, there's, there's going to be a certain type of person that sort of fits into the mold of that field. You know, if there's a lot of women who don't fit into the mold, I, I just don't know how that's supposed to be fixed i think a lot of that
0: mold is actually built by society though
2: okay so yeah I, yeah so i feel like it's going to be difficult to yeah, so break they're saying that
0: you know women are going into technology in the stem fields as much as men and that that's true but even from an early age that's young girls that's kind of the direction that society pushes them away from that now there's more of a drive to try to eliminate that or make it okay i guess not that it ever wasn't okay, but just young girls were often directed more towards the not-as-technical mm-hmm. uh in the past. So I, I think that mold is not something that has existed. I think it's something that it, It's, but, it's interesting
3: because what you just said, the spotlight's been shine, shone on this issue for Google, so they're probably fixing it. Well, never before has it been as looked upon as it is now in society. And you're seeing and you're hearing more about women in these roles mm-hmm. that are that are coming along and chipping away at that mold and trying to remove it. Uh, people like your daughter that are being raised yeah. to say, you know what, that's the norm. I am not going that way. Yeah. And the mold has
0: changed as time has gone on. Exactly. It wasn't until the industrial revolution that really women started
3: working in factories and all that. So, so the, with that, it
0: has evolved as time has gone on.
3: Yes, and the, and and as it's morphing away, it's going to be interesting to see. hopefully, hopefully soon, hopefully within my lifetime, that this the idea of that difference is gone and we'll see where society goes as the next step. But where, where it's interesting that Google's uh, algorithms have taken on society, it's interesting to see where they'll go professionally, where, they, where they'll affect the, both the professional and the personal environments of how people are raised and how people are taught to view themselves, not based on gender, but on personal merit. Fundamentally, women and men are different.
0: They have different skills. And there are definitely roles where there are male-dominated that women would be a better fit for in a lot of cases, and vice versa. They're
1: most, part. And there's always lots of crossover, right? So I started out in the hospital, which was fantastic for any guys listening, as if you're in your late teens, or early 20s, work in a hospital. You are like one of five guys, and there's 100 women. It was wonderful. Yeah.
0: I, I have <laughs> a family who are in the nursing field. And yeah. It's kind of the way it works. You're going to have to lift and carry a lot of things, right? But.
1: And and flex a lot. I had to flex a lot when I was when I was there. It was very difficult for me. Uh, worked was out just a lot. Ahead. Yeah, ate, ate ate well. Lots of protein. But uh, the other thing is, you know, we're we're seeing that same type of percentage now. You know, 5, 10, 20 percent. I don't know the numbers at uh, at my last job was about 50-50 men and women on, on the team. Um, I don't know the numbers at CBI, but I I think it's probably. Pretty close. We got lots of women consultants. I know there's lots of women at CBI. You did not mention Hurricane. Uh, um, Hurricane. There's lots of women at Hurricane. You did not mention uh, Amanda Berlin. She's also speaking here. Certainly. Right. So We're is talking it talking about people that break molds? She breaks a lot. They,
2: <laughs>
4: I think that's something that the, the tech community especially can drive forward and needs to. Um, is that idea that equality is something we should try for um, we should shun people who don't stand for those those sorts of things yeah. and we should make sure to fix our industry and then we can start going about and fixing the rest of them
1: too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think both of you guys are good examples of that with your, your, your wife who's definitely your partner um, I mean you guys are one hundred percent equal, except for when you're sword fighting. And if she's listening to that, I didn't say that. I overheard that. And then you and your your girlfriend. I mean, there's there is some good moves at play, but it's going to take a long time.
2: Yeah. Well, hopefully we can make larger strides soon.
1: Agreed. In that, I could sorry. not agree.
2: All right. To kind of, this is the final topic of discussion. It's it's a question I'm interested in. How are we doing in? The strides from moving from just tactical incident response groups into, you know, full-scale cyber intelligence teams or information security intelligence teams. This
4: is something that takes place above my pay grade, so. It's <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: and Calvin bows out of the conversation.
2: <laughs> Over to you,
1: Tom. I, I <laughs> guess I'm going to have to I just know. <laughs> What I see in industry a
0: lot, you, you're still very much stuck in the whackable. The- there are. The cycle I see a lot of, hey, you get an alert for this sort of malware this machine's compromised. We we scan the system, maybe we patch it.
3: Quarantine patch.
0: Yeah. And then that same thing happens again, you know, somewhere else and the same process is done. And then it's just a continuous cycle of, you know, you show up with the uh, incident response toolkit, you know, you format the machine. There's not necessarily the strives to do more. And a lot of times I don't even know if companies have the resources or the manpower to do more.
3: So here's the interesting part uh, coming from the internal side. What, what's kind of a neat to me to see is the fact that Kelvin's job exists at all. The fact that companies are coming out and saying, hey, we want you to hack us so that we can see what we can fix ahead of time. Are all of those pen tests perfect? No. Are they? some of them done incorrectly? Yes. There are still strides to be made. But the fact that people are asking those questions, asking for that intelligence ahead of time, instead of saying, help desk, my uh, X, Y, and Z person, person's uh, computers aren't infected. Can you go take care of these ones too? The fact that we have security teams in organizations, instead of just a help desk that responds constantly to replace the machine and pray to the gods that they didn't lose any personal information and that they're going to be on the news that's a big step forward in becoming a, in becoming a more secure world, really, in, in changing the landscape of how, uh, criminal activities go. It's, you're, you're always going to have the incident response teams. You're always going to need a blue team. You're always going to have the guys that are going to come in with the toolkit and do the analysis, do the forensics, fix the things. But now there's a lot more companies taking those proactive steps of saying, well, how about we do this before we're the next anthem, and before then, yeah. we're the next target?
4: And there are a lot of companies that are learning lessons from other companies' incidents that are taking that intelligence, those attack methods, those um, key indicators, I and not models, and you, th- and using those to model these threats appropriately and to to get. To get better at detecting these threats and responding to them, and I think that's an important aspect of it.
1: And I think we need to remember it's it's a spectrum, right? It's, it's a maturity. I don't know anything. What's going on? Oh my god! Something happened. Quick, image the box. Very mature. To, All right. I know what happened. I got some logs. Okay. Now I kind of know what to do. And if it happens again, I've got a process. To, All right. I've got I've got good logging. Central logging. I've got an instant response plan. I've got some, uh, you know, rules and correlation to now I'm gathering threat intel. I'm on the Isaac's information sharing centers. I'm plugging in my IP address and my indicators and my mail or signatures. Okay. I'm doing really good and I'm maintaining that and I'm looking for that in addition to all these other things to finally going out and getting a couple steps ahead to say, what are the actual attack tactics? How can I have a dedicated team who's looking at this? Can I be pulling information in from other companies and modeling our own environment? It's an entire growth. And I'm starting to see, I've got one one client that I've, I was really amazed at. They they took this whole journey, and now they've got three guys, and they're, it's just completely strategist, completely brain trust. They're forming a threat intel group. They're reaching out to different groups and trying to see what's going on, different companies to see what uh, they learned and how they can reproduce it. Scouring the dark web, reading the news, planning ahead, all the things you said. How do I know that I'm not going to become the next anthem? That's what these three guys are charged with. But to do that, you've got to go through the entire journey, and then you've got to ha- take a leap of faith to say, I'm going to pull these guys out of the sock, and I'm just going to trust that they're doing something. that looks like they're only being slashed out and giggling over Reddit, but I'm sure they've got this. you no, I mean, you got, got to pull them out of the day-to-day operation so you can think strategically. That's, that's the challenge, right? Absolutely. Is, Traversing and then getting people in place. And to plug uh,
4: Rafael Mudge's keynote from earlier again, um, that's something that will keep pen testers more relevant, even as our tools get detected, our methods get uh, mitigated, our attack vectors grow slimmer, is being able to emulate these actors that are able to penetrate basically any network they want to who are able to use these very advanced tactics to get into networks, or sometimes very simple tactics, but taking them to the extreme to get in. And that's how we stay relevant as pen testers, even after our tools get detected or after our favorite attack methods get less and less useful.
3: And it sharpens the teeth of the industry as a whole. I mean, the ones that don't stay relevant are the same thing as the companies that don't mature their security posture. They will get popped. These guys will lose lose clients who realize, these guys are just going into my network and firing off Nmap. That's not a pen test. That's not what I wanted. You're going to get people that custom make their exploits, which if you want to learn how to do, I hear there's a talk later.
1: But... Yeah, and you know what happens when you exploit data or DNS. <laughs> so I, I, I think, you know, I hear a lot of the same things. And really what's interesting to me is today... Again, thinking about the maturity, in the first, like, half of that maturity, if you do something, Kelvin, and they catch you, that's like, uh, oh, look, our controls are good. Yay, Kelvin, you must have done not such a good job. Maybe we need a different pen tester. I don't know. Right? If you move up that spectrum and you get caught, well, yeah, that's great. So now what did you do? What was your process? What was your instant response? Is there metrics around that? Did you meet your metrics? Did you meet your SLI? You getting caught actually becomes part of the exercise. And it's important to have clients that let us do these
4: things, that let us get in and or have assumed access and start to make moves around their networks with that assumption that we will get access. It's just a matter of time and then moving from there to see if they can detect what we're doing after that. And that's something that I would like to see a lot more of, um, but it's harder for companies to accept that.
1: Well, again, it all depends on where they're in the maturity model, right? Exactly. I think, um, so one of the examples I always use is Barracuda. You guys remember the Barracuda story where Barracuda is this WAF manufacturer, and they got this website, and they got this WAF, and they sell this WAF, and the WAF's great, and no one can break your website and everything, and they did maintenance, and they turned off the WAF and someone did SQL injection on their website and dumped all the customer data. Did you guys hear about this? No, I did not hear about
3: this.
0: So
1: every single pen test ever, are you testing through the WAF if you're hitting a website? Absolutely. How many clients are smart enough to go, hey, what happens if our WAF accidentally gets disabled? Let's have Kelvin test it that way. A handful, but it's an education process. One of the best examples of a pen test was exactly that. In a pen test, you only have so much
3: time. You're not going to hire Kelvin to indefinitely hammer away on uh, your firewalls and stuff. Hoping he one day gets in, because then we'll be dealing with old man Kelvin, who finally says, hey, I did it! And when right is he goes to do it, Tom will rotate the firewall. Exactly, <laughs> and then he's screwed, and then you just see Kelvin go home with a beard reaching down to his knees like Jack Daniel, <laughs> alone. <laughs> And because he devoted. Well, oh, but then
1: you can keynote conferences, it'd be great. It's true. And
3: that's not making fun <laughs> of Jack Daniel. He's an awesome guy. I am I'm, I'm just using his beard as I, an example. I, I want to we all aspire to Jack Daniel's beard. That's exactly. the takeaway of this. And but your point is awesome. is that they're
1: not gonna go the best thing. Yeah, they're
3: not gonna go indefinitely. So you have to identify okay, we're gonna give Calvin two weeks to hammer away on the outside. If he sees something, if he gets something, awesome, we can fix that. Okay, the next two weeks, we are assuming that you or somebody else already got inside. So we're going to start from there. We're going to infect a few of our boxes. Our team's not going to know about it.
4: Go. And that's an issue with a lot of pen tests because a lot of customers don't understand that a lot of the pen tests we do, um, we might not be able to get shells because the, the perimeter is pretty good at keeping stuff out because that's become like the lowest hanging standard. Even if there's cross-site scripting on your site or something like that, there might not be a way to actually break into the internal network, even if you can get a little bit of information about that. And you can look at that as pen testers failing to not get in because we aren't good at our jobs or whatever. You can also look at that as a bad example of a test because somebody will do something at some point that will get you infected.
1: Absolutely. And so... um... Tom, do you do much on the like the monitoring side or forensic side? Sometimes more on a personal sort of thing. Okay. So forensics is somewhat
0: one of my interests.
1: All right. So what I was wondering is from an incident response perspective, how much you've seen, and maybe the question goes to you, Nick, because I know you monitor this as well, how oftentimes the bad guys break in through the perimeter versus send a phishing email or do something, give a call you know all the low hanging, or not all low hanging All the bypassing of the perimeter and all the sneaky stuff.
0: It's a combination, I think, because if all else fails, social engineering is always going to work. Then, the weakest point is always the people. Yeah, sometimes it's easy to the point where you have you know vulnerable things on your external sites that could be leveraged. Yeah, they don't even have to bother with social engineering. But I think yeah. if you can't get in externally. Use like a low hanging fruit sort of type of attack. Right, you're more off. At least the attacker was more likely going to be trying some social engineering to get that you know spearfishing foothold and then and remote, go from there. Remote
4: exploits are becoming much less common than they were. Like, yeah, it would be very very surprising to find like an MSO eight oh six seven on the um, internet. On the internet, it would be very very uncommon to find a new vulnerability like that. It'd be very,
0: very surprising and very bad. That's because every MS 08067 on the internet has already been exploited <laughs> that's true. within seconds. That's true. I'm, I'm, the I'm, internet not so talking, so. I'm
4: talking less about that specific vulnerability as to something like that class of vulnerability, a remotely ex- exploitable vulnerability that's going to give you
1: root on a box instantly. Yeah. So You're I gonna, was a security officer and uh, managed the security teams, the dev teams and IT teams. For about seven years at a financial services firm. Hey, I know that. Yes, you do. I once had this intern, and everything went to hell, I believe. So, uh,
3: you can't see my look of incredulity. There, true story. So, nothing to hell after I.
1: So nothing went to hell. Everything was great. the The place was fantastic. We got attacked all the time, though, because we're a financial company. Anonymous wants us. Everyone wants us. Where do you go to attack Where the money is. We had money. Every single one of of the breaches we investigated were from the inside. We never had anyone traverse the the perimeter because we had a hardened firewall. We were doing VA and PT on it. We knew where it was going to go on. So all the bad guys who want to attack us had to go in other ways. And so as we hardened the perimeter and then focused on the inside, which is where everything was going on, the other thing that allows us to do was build these threat intelligence programs and start, we we're doing with uh, FSISAC, pulling that information in and sharing mm-hmm. that information around. Uh, so I agree with you. People are now hiding the perimeter. It's very hard to pen test into that. Yeah, but uh, the Great Wall of test...
3: China is a very old defense mechanism. Correct. So all
1: you do is you walk around the wall. We all know this. And, and so that's what the criminals are doing. That's what our assessments need to be doing. And, and we also need to start educating the clients on what's next. What do you do now? And
0: from, I mean, even from an like an outside in a inbound protection on a firewall, that's been kind of things we've been preaching
1: for years. Yeah. I mean,
0: we've been talking about outbound filtering for years too, and it's significantly less likely to be implemented.
1: Would you believe I actually had that argument like this year? We oh, shouldn't yeah. do egress filtering. No, you should egress filter everything.
0: In one of my more psychotic moves, I I did implement egress filtering on the fly for a customer in the middle of a malware incident. They must have loved you. It stopped the problem. I'm sure it did. (laughs) I'm
1: 100% sure it did.
0: It's like, hey, so at this point, you allow everything out. In five minutes from now, we're going to allow 8443, and your DNS servers can do DNS. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, we'll let email out, too. Right, absolutely. It,
1: from your email servers, though, yes. not from your desktops. Yep.
0: And that at least allowed them to buy enough time, like you yeah. talk about, to help remediate the problem. Right. It's just, there's just enough times, though, that you get on a box. And it's not even have to be an IDS sensor. I've gotten it on firewalls or just done a TCP dump. I'm like, there's something bad going on here. And if you can see that using the log correlation engine of your eyes looking at things flying through the screen... Yeah. That's bad.
1: Now how many of your clients take this one step forward? How many of your clients are doing egress filtering on host-based firewalls? Are you showing off
3: now? It feels like you're showing off. I'm not showing now. off.
1: My point is is that every time we put in a control, someone circumvents it mm-hmm. and we've got to come up with a better control.
3: That's true. And it's the okay. But that's you know, the Kelvin's nature of security. Point,
1: that's the nature of security. This is the this is what makes this interesting. This is what makes it fun. This is what makes us keep coming back.
3: That's true. It's also what gives all us blue teamers gray hair.
1: That's why I look like an old man. But I think also
4: the clients need to understand why it is we need to test things from the inside, from an assumed compromise. Uh, mm-hmm. That's why it's important. And I, I'm talking from a month and a half of, of
3: no, that's experience from my true. new job,
4: but I've been interested in this stuff for a while, and I see that a lot of pen tests are just end mappings, and looking at web apps that we find, because there's not much you can do to circumvent the perimeter, even if their web app is full of holes. You might be able to get in through SQL or something, but cross-site scripting doesn't necessarily give you a good way to get in, to bypass the perimeter. You have to test what it would be like if somebody did get in, because somebody will, but if your pen test group can't test that, then you will be caught completely unprepared. And that's something that the clients need to
1: understand. Right, which is which falls on, I mean, that is in large part what I do on a day-to-day basis. Being with senior security leaders, explaining the current threats, explaining what I've seen that works well, and explaining what I think uh, is failing and having those conversations and educating people. So next time I'll be like, here's a picture of Kelvin. You don't want Kelvin to be bored. You want Kelvin to be happy. I have a picture of you sad. And picture Kelvin happy. No, I mean it's it's uh, it's an education in the marketplace. We've educated people that we need to pen test. We're doing good there. Now we need to educate them in the next step. Exactly.
2: Right. So ultimately, in hopes to keep up with the malicious players and the threat landscape, yeah, clients. I agree. Clients need to be educated on you know having this intelligence on where the the attacker motives lie, what they're trying to accomplish, you know, why this was their goal, where they ended up, and all of that raw data that can be collected about them needs to be able to be transformed into the intelligence with context. And um, a little plug for Splunk, that's why we use Splunk, because it's a great centralized platform for that. So I think that pretty much wraps everything up. Unless anyone has anything else?
1: No. Okay. Hey, thank you guys for coming out and joining the conference. And thank you for having me on this podcast. Absolutely.
2: We look forward to it next year as well. Awesome. It is happening yeah. next year.
1: It is absolutely on next year. Excellent. <laughs> We'd love to have you guys back.
2: All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.